One of my favorite ways to invest is real estate, but not everyone wants to handle tenants and toilets. Enter Fundrise. They make it easy to invest in real estate with their flagship fund. Now, as always, you always have to carefully consider the investment objectives and risks of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. But right now, demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. And the Fundrise flagship fund plans on going on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with just as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash PFP. As always, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash PFP. That's fundrise.com slash PFP. This is a paid advertisement. One of the most important financial decisions that you can make is buying life insurance especially if you have people who depend on your income. It could be a spouse, an aging parent, children, or even a business partner, which is why I recommend term life insurance from Policy Genius. It's cheap and easy to set up, and Policy Genius is where I went to to get my policy, and they made it so incredibly easy. I had a simple phone call, answered some questions, and I was completely set up. And with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million worth of coverage. And some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. On this episode of the Personal Finance Podcast, we're going to talk to Carl and Mindy Jensen about the live and flip. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Personal finance podcast i'm your host andrew founder of mastermoney.co and today on the personal finance podcast we are going to be talking to carl and mindy jensen about the live and flip if you have any questions make sure you hit us up on instagram or tiktok at mastermoneyco and follow us on spotify apple podcasts or whatever podcast player you love listening to this podcast too and if you want to help out the show leave a five star rating and review on apple podcast or spotify now today i'm really excited for this conversation because this is one of my favorite ways to invest in real estate especially if you're a beginner investing in real estate and it is the live and flip and the live and flip is one of the most powerful things that you can do with your money because you have to have a place to live so why not turn an okay asset which is your house into an amazing asset and something that i can appreciate over time and actually make you tax-free dollars and carl and mindy are some of the best at this they've done nine or ten of these things and have been able to do this over the course of their investing career and really, really accelerated their path to fire because of it. Now, Carl is the co-host of the Mile High Fi podcast, and Mindy is the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. So these are two fantastic podcasts that I would definitely check out. And they both share their experiences with Live and Flips with us today. We're going to go through the basics of Live and Flips, how the tax-free dollars work, how the systems work that you put into place. We're going to go to the most important part, which is finding properties and making sure that you buy, live, and flips right. We're going to talk about the funding and how they actually fund these properties. We're going to get into the repairs because the repairs are a massive part of live and flips because you have to be able to do the repairs. That's a big part of the strategy. Then we're going to get into what are some strategies that you can use to sell your live and flip after a couple of years once you've owned that property for at least two years. And then we're going to talk about their best living flip and their worst living flip stories as well. So without further ado, let's welcome Carl and Mindy to the Personal Finance Podcast. So Carl, Mindy, welcome to the Personal Finance Podcast. Hey, Andrew. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, this is super fun. 
We are so incredibly excited to have you here because you guys are some of the experts in live-in flips. And we've talked about live-in flips in this podcast a few times, and I've done one live-in flip in my life as well. And it was one of my favorite ways to invest in real estate. It was the first way I invested in real estate as well. But you guys have done way more live-in flips than I have, and you've probably had some trials and tribulations. But in addition, you've had some successes with the live-in flips as well very early on. And I remember reading your blog a very long time ago and kind of watching your progress as you did some of these live-in flips. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about this today. So first of all, can you tell me about yourselves and how you got started in Living Flips? Yeah, we got married. Jeez, our 21st anniversary is upon us in <laughs> one week from now. And Thanks for outing me. <laughs> and slightly before that, the dinosaurs are on the earth. No, we are not actually that old. But yeah, yes, we, are. <laughs> we were married and we decided to move into my house. We both had our own houses at the time. Mindy had a condo, I had a house. And we decided to move into mine. And I had this problem with the shower where the water supply would not work. It was leaking all over the place and had issues. So I called up this plumber and the plumber's like, yeah, I'll be over tomorrow. And he didn't show up tomorrow. He showed up like a day late. And then he came, looked at it. He's like, yeah, I can fix that. It's going to be like one or 200 bucks, something like that. I can come back tomorrow to fix it. So I said, okay, great. Done deal. So I wait till tomorrow. He doesn't show up. I call him. He still doesn't show up. I call him again. No, I, I, I can't get a hold of this guy. So I was kind of angry. Uh, I'm like, well, I wonder how difficult this would be to do myself. I had never really done work on houses before. So I went to the library. Again, we're old, so there was no YouTube at this time. I, I go to the library and I get this book about basic plumbing. I'm like, oh, look at that. It's just this little washer thing. And it costs like $1.25 at the home improvement store. This might have been pre-Home Depot. So I went there, bought this thing, and I fixed it in like an hour. Wow, that wasn't that hard. And I, the piece was a couple bucks. I just saved like 100 or 200 bucks from what this plumber would have charged. And then he called me back a week later. And it was so gratifying to tell him, ah, no, I don't need you anymore. I fixed it myself. So that got us thinking, how hard is this stuff? And from there, we did a tile job. And from there, we hung cabinets. And then we did basic electricity and then drywall fixing. And what we found is this stuff just wasn't that difficult. And the other thing we found is this house we had purchased for $140,000. We did a bunch of cosmetic stuff to it and sold it for $240,000. So we're like, you know, we don't have kids yet. Let's buy this and do it again. We made a lot of money and tax-free money, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And that set us on the path to do a bunch more. And I think now we're on nine or 10. And that is absolutely incredible, kind of how it snowballed for you guys as well. And doing your own work is a big part that we can talk about here coming up. But I think that's a very interesting way to do it as well, because when I did mine, I didn't do as much of my own work as you guys in it, but obviously increases the potential to profit on some of these houses. But before we dive into this, I want people who have never heard of a live and flip before to kind of get an explanation of what it is. So can you explain what a live and flip is? A live and flip is when you buy a house and move into it and it isn't perfect. Maybe it is a shrine to 1970, or maybe there is some work that needs to be done. Maybe you need to move some walls or add some square footage to it, remodel in some way. And so while you're living in the house, you are remodeling the house. What makes it a true live-in flip is when you live there for two years. And the reason is uh, section 121 of the IRS tax code says that if you live in a home for and own it for two of the last five years, you can sell it and pay no taxes on the gain up to $250,000 if you're single and up to $500,000 if you're married. So we have paid no taxes on all of these flips because we've lived in them for at least two years and we are married and we've never made more than $500,000 or actually come anywhere close to that. Actually, I have a new goal to pay taxes on my gain because I have made so much money on my flip that I can then have to uh, pay taxes on it. And that's the gain. That's not just the difference between what you bought it for and what you sold it for. That's what you bought it for, plus all of the rehab that you've done to it. So the cost of those rehabs, that's your cost basis. So that amount 
subtracted from the amount you sell it. And you guys can see how incredibly powerful this can become, because if you have this tax free growth, this is so incredibly powerful. That's why I absolutely love that part of it as well. If you are looking to do something like this, this is a fantastic way to save on taxes. And within that code, Mindy, there's also you don't have to live there for two years in a row, right? You can do it within a time frame where it's like two years out of five. Is that right? That's correct. It doesn't have to be two solid years. You can live there for a year, move out, rent it out for three years, and then move back in for another year. You've satisfied the two out of five rule. Now, I do want to caveat that's the current rule. Who knows what's going to happen in the future, but that's what we have been operating under for the last 21 It's actually more than 21 years. Carl said we got started at his house. I actually got started at my own house. I didn't have much money, so I bought a condo and I fixed it up because it was a dump. And then when I sold it, I bought it for $49,500 and I sold it for, what, $74,000 or something, which is an absurd number to even say right now with how prices are going. But in four years, I made $25,000 on a condo that cost me $50,000. Like that was pretty sweet. It's so cool because you're living in a house and usually houses aren't that great of an asset when it's your personal residence. They get on average like three to 4%. If it's a rental, it's a different story, obviously. But you're turning that asset that's not that great of an asset into something that can be a really, really great asset over time over the course of those two years. And this can really snowball over time as well, where you can reinvest some of these profits and invest in either real estate or the market or whatever else you want to do when you start to do this. So this is a really cool way to start to invest your dollars over time, especially in markets right now when you know, we have really high markets right now. So this may be another strategy that you can get started investing in real estate if you can find deals that work really well. So I want to kind of talk through finding properties because this is obviously one of the biggest factors. You make all of your money when you buy the property. So this is a major, major thing that a lot of people need to understand. So when you start to look for a new live and flip, how do you go through that process? Yeah, so I think this is the biggest, most important factor. I always tell people it's better to wait for a great deal than to jump in on an okay deal. Uh, So we look for basically three things. The first thing we want is a city that's doing well and is on the upswing. When I think about a place to buy, I want to buy in an area that if I did absolutely nothing to this house, it would probably beat the average house appreciation, even if we did absolutely nothing. And that's because the economy is growing and the town is on the upswing. So we don't look for a perfect, shiny, really nice town. We look for one that might have been a little bit rough, but that's on the upswing. And Longmont fit that bill perfectly. We used to have a turkey processing plant on the beautiful Main Street. And now since we've moved there, that is gone. And there's retail space and high-end apartments there. So that's the first thing we look for. The second thing I look for is the neighborhood. We want houses that are probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 years old. Some have been updated. Some have not. Of course, I'm looking for the ones that have not been updated. I look for houses in that vintage because super old houses can have a lot of other issues like foundation work and stuff like that. We want to do mostly cosmetic work to it. The thing I look for, I made this up and I call it the dumpster indicator. So I'm looking for a neighborhood. (laughs) I like that term. (laughs) We drive around and look at the number of dumpsters. And this came from, I read a long time ago, someone was talking about cranes in big cities. So if a big city is loaded with cranes, that means there's lots of development work going on there, people are putting money into it. If I see dumpsters all of the neighborhood, it means that people are moving into this neighborhood and spending money. That is going to increase the average house price. So I want to see dumpsters everywhere. I also like looking at them. You can we found some really great stuff in dumpsters, but <laughs> but but that is a whole other story. So so number one was to look for a city. Number two is to look for an area of the city with a lot of dumpsters that people are putting money into that might be 30 or 40 years old. And finally, number three is to look for the house itself. And yeah, I alluded to this before. We like looking for houses that are old and crusty. And I call this the pink toilet indicator. I love houses with pink. We had a house like this before with pink toilets and blue bathtubs because that stuff is old. No one wants it anymore. And it's not that hard to fix. It's not like we're raising a foundation or fixing a roof that's caving in, which we've seen. We want easy cosmetic work. So go for the city and then look for the neighborhood and then focus on a house. And the number one tip I could give people is once you've located, once you've figured out what neighborhood you want to be in, sign up for real estate listings and study every single one of them. To find our current house, the one we're sitting in right now, we looked for about two years 
We would look at every single real estate listing and we would go see most of the houses that came on the market. So as soon as one that popped up, we could look at the listing and tell within probably 30 seconds whether it was not pursuing, but you really have to put your time in. Yeah. And you want to be really honest with yourself. What is your pain threshold? What is your talent level with regards to repairs or finding contractors? Um, Finding contractors can be really difficult. So if you're coming from a family full of contractors, awesome. But if you don't know a soul in the industry, you're going to have a really hard time getting the work done. If you don't know what you're doing or how to do it, YouTube University will walk you through step by step, any repair, any rehab, anything you want to do, you have to be honest with yourself. Do you have the time to do it? Do you have the skills to do it or the desire to learn? And, you know, do you want to live in a construction zone? We are going to talk about how great it is because we're cashing $100,000 checks every two years. Um, how much was this Bruce house? Like two seventy five. How much did we pay for it? No, how much did we make off of it? Oh, yeah, like 300000 Yeah, 300000 That was really awesome. But living through a construction zone can really suck. So be honest with yourself before you start. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's just a huge factor that most people may be going into this and they just don't think about that part. You're living in a construction zone. You may have things that are just unfinished. Maybe you only have one or two bathrooms in that house and one of those bathrooms is down. So now you have an entire family utilizing one bathroom where you can think, what would you do if you didn't have a kitchen? You have to order out all week long and kind of go through that process as well. So this is a major thing to kind of think through. And I love the idea of the pink tile, the pink bathtubs, those types of things. That was what my first house had as well. And it's one of those things where people can't kind of visualize what this could become. And so most people don't want that, but it's very easy to fix that stuff. And it's very easy to have that stuff fixed as well if you don't want to do the work yourself. So that's a really cool way to kind of think about it as well. So I love that. So those are some major factors. I can tell you like my first, the one that we did, we had carpet in the kitchen, actual carpet, shaggy carpet in the kitchen. The walls were purple. So cosmetic stuff is the easy stuff. And that is where I really look for, even when I invest in rental properties, I'm always looking for cosmetic repairs first, because obviously that's the stuff where a lot of people can't visualize what the property can look like. And at the same time, you can fix those cosmetic things and cosmetic repairs aren't that big of a deal. And then Mindy brought up the side of with contractors. And I think that's a huge factor as well as finding the right contractors. If you're not in this industry, if you've never done it before, it is very difficult and they are very difficult to manage at times as well, especially when you have deadlines that you want to hit. And so if you're getting closer to that two year point, you want to sell this house and then find another one. Sometimes it's harder to get contractors in there. So you got to have good planning processes and have this all in place as well. So I absolutely love that part of it. So are you ever willing to do repairs to a live and flip if they're not cosmetic? Or have you ever done that before? (laughs) This is so timely. (laughs) Uh, We have done non-cosmetic repairs. We have added a second story on two houses. I don't think we will ever do that again because that is a lot of work. It always happens in the wintertime too. We had a really unpleasant experience with that both times. I think we're going to talk about that later. (laughs) So I prefer cosmetic repairs. There are a couple of repairs that I don't want to touch. I don't want to touch a broken foundation because I don't know anything about it and I don't want to learn. There's plenty of properties that are hideous that don't have broken foundations. And I don't touch meth houses. That's a personal thing. Yeah. In our current house and the one we're working on right now, we discovered that they had put all the plumbing in an exterior wall and we're in Colorado and- you don't do that because the pipes will freeze. So the previous handyman was incompetent. He had also miswired a bunch of stuff. So sometimes even <laughs> if you don't go in there expecting these kind of problems, you find them or they'll find you. That plumbing one certainly would have found us if we wouldn't have found it. Yeah, yes. We, yes. A couple of weeks ago, it was, uh, what, 10 below zero with negative 50 wind chill. And it doesn't really get that cold here in Colorado. I think that's the second time it's gotten below zero since we've lived here in 10 years. But it doesn't matter how frequently it happens. It matters that you own the house when it happens and those pipes would have frozen. We had two friends who had pipes that froze and burst during that spell. So that would have been a huge disaster to repair 
uh, if we hadn't found that. Absolutely. Adding a second story, that is something that can be very difficult, especially if you're living in the property. That's incredible. And I can kind of see that side of it as well. The only major repairs that I've ever had with rental properties or anything like that is typically stuff that I couldn't see at first. So there may be like pipes that we had to, to fix or things like that. But typically I try to look for cosmetic stuff first. If it needs a new roof, that kind of thing, roofs are pretty easy to hire a contractor out and get the pricing for. But some of the other stuff, foundation, I agree with you, the same type of thing where I'm not going to touch anything with a messed up foundation. Have you been using Mint for your finances? Well, there's been some mixed reviews and Mint is winding down, transitioning users to Credit Karma, which frankly isn't as comprehensive. But don't worry because I've found a fantastic alternative that I've been loving called Monarch Money. And Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. And you can create custom budgets, you can track your progress towards financial goals, and my favorite part, you can collaborate with your partner. And now, listeners for this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to Monarch money.com slash pfp and after trying out monarch for myself i understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app and right now listeners to this show will get that extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pfp that's m-o-n-a-r-c-h-m-o-n-e-y.com slash pfp for your extended 30-day free trial go to monarchmoney.com slash pfp we're driven by the search for better But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. And if you need to hire, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. And they have a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. So ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash personal finance. Just go to Indeed.com slash personal finance right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash personal finance. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now is a great time of year to get your finances in order. And no matter what your financial goals are this year, when you use Chime's online checking account, you can cross all those financial to-dos off your list. Chime's online checking account has tons of benefits that millions of members love, like fee-fee overdraft up to $200. Plus, get paid up to two days early with direct deposit, all while managing your money on the go 24-7. And you get access to over 60,000 ATMs. So start building your credit and open a Chime checking account with at least $200 qualifying direct deposit to get started. Get started at Chime.com PFP. That's Chime.com PFP. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank, N.A., or Stride Bank, N.A., members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Early access to direct deposit funds depends on payer. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. The key to winning in any business is making sure you have the right business partner. An example is Procter & Gamble or Ben & Jerry. But what about the perfect partners when it comes to growing your business? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to, did we just hit a million dollars stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. And most people know one of your biggest struggles when it comes to starting an online business is finding new customers and Shopify can help you do that. And what I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com PFP, all lowercase. So go to shopify.com PFP now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash PFP. When you analyze these live and flips, let's say you want to go through and run the numbers. And we obviously know that running the numbers is the most important thing that you have to do when it comes to analyzing these properties so that you can figure out what your profit is going to be. And that is how you make your money is when you enter into the property. So when you analyze these live and flips, how do you do that analysis? Do you do it on a spreadsheet? Do you use a calculator? What is your favorite way to do that? I'm a real estate agent and we are in Longmont. And 
I am in and out of so many houses in the city of Longmont that I have a fairly good idea of what houses are selling for in different conditions, in already fixed up condition, in not yet fixed up condition. So that's something that's really important. If you want to be a real estate investor, if you want to start live in flipping even, you need to know your market. And I can tell you fairly accurately what a house, like a price range that a house is going to sell for. And that's just because I know the market so well. So when I'm analyzing live in flips, I'm looking at the house. They only want 400 for this. Oh my goodness. What's wrong with it? Let's go see this. Or they want 650 for this. It's never going to sell for that. But I'll keep an eye on it to make sure. And lo and behold, I'm right. It sold at 605. And I knew that because I know the market. So how do we analyze them? We know the market really, really, really well. I've been an agent for 10 years and I have had a MLS listing set up for any house in Longmont that comes up. I think under a million dollars. I don't care if it's over a million. I'm not going to be looking at those. But anything under a million dollars, I know that the house has come on the market and I just kind of keep an eye on it. After a while, you just kind of get to the point where you know. Um, Once we're in the property, we're looking around. We know how much a kitchen costs because we've done it so many times. We know how much a bathroom costs. We know approximately when you're walking through, you can just kind of guesstimate, oh, I think we're going to be forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars on this. So you plan for sixty and you hope for forty, but you always want to plan high. Yeah, I do do a spreadsheet too. Uh, one helpful tip is IKEA kitchens are pretty underrated. You can plug in the dimensions of the potential house you're going to work on and plan a kitchen out in probably five or ten minutes, and they'll spit out the exact price right then. And that's probably going to be your most expensive thing as well, your most expensive cosmetic change. So. Yeah, once you've been through it, a lot of times we can do a pretty quick and dirty estimate as to what everything is going to cost and then add 20% to that. Because uh, Easily add 20% to that. But I think that's really important. Do a quick and dirty estimate. If you're walking through a property and it's listed at 500 and it needs $150,000 worth of work in your ballpark mind and you know it'll never sell for 650, that's not a good property. It's easy to just move on. It's really easy to cross off houses quickly just because I know how much work costs. There's a really great book from Bigger Pockets Publishing called The Book on Estimating Rehab Costs. It's written by Jay Scott. And he did a survey of different people around the country. How much does it cost for a roof in your area? How much does it cost for drywall work? How much does it cost for all these different things? And it's a great way to get a good estimate on your rehab costs if this isn't something that you're doing on a frequent basis. Yeah, there's one other real quick thing I'll add to this. We always try to anticipate what this thing is going to sell for in a couple of years when it comes time to sell. But two years from now, you have no idea what the market's going to be doing. Like right now, when housing has crashed, we have this big bubble. But the beauty of a live and flip is you need a place to live. The worst case scenario is the market takes a big dive and you're living in this beautiful house because you fixed up. What do you do then? You just stay in the house for a bit longer. That's it. Wait for the market to recover. Yeah, I think that's really important to note that you've already got an exit strategy and your exit strategy is just to stay put. You know, take your two years and turn it into four years or whatever. So that's important when you're choosing a house. If you don't want to live in that neighborhood, don't buy a house in that neighborhood. If you don't want to live in that city, don't buy a house in that city. Just because it's cheap doesn't make it a good deal. Exactly. That's one of the most important factors, I think, is people kind of have to think through this. When you're looking for these properties, you have to be willing to stay there, especially if you have a family or kids as well, thinking through, well, what schools would they be going to? How would you actually have to operate your family in this area? So you got to make sure that this is an area that you definitely want to stay in, especially if we have somewhat of a downturn during that time frame. You know, you get two years later, maybe we have somewhat of a recession or a dip or something like that. And you have to be willing to stay put in that area as well. Now, In Jay Scott's book, who you mentioned earlier, that's the first book I ever read on learning how to actually figure out rehab costs years ago. So I love that book as well. I definitely recommend that one. So if someone doesn't have as much experience as maybe you both do, how would you recommend them go through this process? Should they practice running the numbers on these properties? Should they do a certain amount before they actually get into this? Or how do you recommend them kind of thinking through this process? 
Yeah. One thing that makes it a little bit easier is if you move into a community that has a cookie cutter community or semi cookie cutter community, because then you could see, okay, what we did with this, I'll back up a second. What we did with our neighborhood now is we walked through our neighborhood and we found every single model of the current house. So I think there's about 200 houses here and there's like 18 versions of our house. And we plugged all that into a spreadsheet and took the average of that. So we knew exactly what we should be paying for the house and what we thought we could make from it. Like you try to see them and you can go on Zillow.com or Realtor.com and see pictures of the houses. So, hey, look, this one sold for a premium. Let's see what it sold for. Or this one seemed to sell for a discount. Let's see what the pictures of it look like. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Look at the condition of the house. So it makes the analyzing part of it much easier. If you move into a house where everything is custom or a neighborhood where everything is custom or the houses are unique, it's going to make the job a little bit more difficult for you and probably make it a little bit harder to sell as well. Yeah. And I think that you should be analyzing properties well before you start making offers on properties. Go to open houses. It's free to go to an open house. Walk in the property and see what it looks like. Oh, they want $500,000 for this house and it's a dump. I wonder if this is something that's going to be you know, when it's fixed up, what is it going to be worth? Connect with a real estate agent and talk to the open house agents until you have an agent that you feel a good connection with. Ask them to run some numbers for you or simply run a search. Can you tell me all the houses that sold in this neighborhood in the last year? That's a three second search on my MLS. It's very easy. I run it. I send it to you. I do it when I'm having my coffee in the morning. If your agent is unwilling to do that, don't work with that agent because they're going to be unwilling to do a lot of other things. It should be a very easy process. Every MLS is different, of course, because why would we have uniformity in this industry? (laughs) But every agent should be able to do this very quickly. And if they can't, that's a great way to screen out the agent. But yeah, you want to see what's been selling and in what condition. Even though you can't get into a house that has sold, most of the time the pictures are still up on the MLS. So you can see the condition. You should be running the numbers on these properties, run them backwards too. Like go and see a house that sold, oh, it sold for 450. This house looks like it needs a new kitchen. So that'll be this price and a new bathroom. That's this price. And get good at running these numbers. Go to Home Depot and spend time walking through the aisles. Just, oh, I didn't know tile was $27 a square foot or It could also be $3 a square foot. So then when you're looking at houses, you can start to get familiarity with how much a job costs. Plus read that book. These are great tips because that's exactly what I did too, is every single day I set a goal that I wanted to analyze X amount of property. So at first I would do five properties every single day and you start to really get a feel for what your market is and what the costs are going to be. And then I did the same thing. I would run the numbers backwards as well. I would look at sold properties and I would say, how much did they buy these for? What did they do to this property? What was the condition beforehand? And what are the, some of the things they did? And then I would try to actually work backwards and see how much would this cost to do all of this work? So I think that is a great way to do it and really just practicing. Practicing is one of the most important things that you can do when you're running these numbers. You have to do that before you jump into some of these because you are going to make a mistake if you don't. If you don't have an understanding of how this works, this is the most important factor. That's why I wanted to spend so much time on this is because it really is so incredibly important for people to understand this part. Now, when it comes to funding, this is obviously a big one for people as well. Obviously, as the homeowner, we're going to live in this house. We have a lot more options to funding than you would if you bought it as a rental property or something else. So how do you typically fund these properties? Do you do a specific type of loan every single time? And or when you buy your second live and flip or your third live and flip, do you use some of the profits for the next one? How do you actually think about that? That is a super great question. And yet again, another reason why a live and flip is so awesome. We are funding these properties with owner occupied loans, traditional mortgage. We call up a lender and we ask them, you know, what are your rates for an owner occupied loan? What is it at this amount down? What is it at this amount down? An owner occupied loan can be had for as little as 3% down with a conventional 3.5% down with an FHA loan, 0% down with a USDA loan or a VA loan. Some conditions may apply, of course, but, you know, there are a lot of low 
money down options. Whereas if you're using traditional mortgages to buy an investment property, you're lucky if you can find a lender who will get you in at 20% down, it's usually 25% down. And if you're buying like a duplex or a triplex or something like that, so that you can house hack, you are needing to show like six months of cash reserves on top of your down payment. So one of the best ways, in my opinion, to invest in real estate is to do a live-in flip because A, you need a place to live. B, you can get in with a super low down payment loan and your lender only requires you to live there for 12 months to satisfy your owner occupancy requirement. Then you can move out, keep that low down payment, lower interest rate, owner occupant loan and turn it into a rental. So you can do the live-in flip strategy if you're situation changes, you can turn it into a long-term rental. If your neighborhood or city allows, you can turn it into a short-term rental. You can turn it into a medium-term rental. There's so many exit strategies with the live-in flip. And the reason that it makes so much sense is because it is you're getting in with a lowest down owner-occupied loan. Yeah. And I'll say one other strategy that we've done a couple times for our last two properties is we find a way to come up with cash to buy the house. We might not actually have the cash, but we might borrow from a HELOC from our previous house or a margin loan from our investment account. So what that allows you to do is go to the seller and say, hey, I can close in like a week. I can close in in eight days if you accept my offer. Uh, Here's proof of funds. And then what you could do after you've bought the house is do a cash out refinance and then get a conventional mortgage. But a lot of times a seller, especially if the house has been on the market for a while, which was the situation with our current house, they're worried and they just want the money. So you might be able to negotiate a better price if you can come in there and close quickly. Exactly. I found that in so many different situations where a seller is extremely motivated, especially if that house has been sitting, like you said, and they're starting to panic because a lot of times they want to get out of those houses. So if you can close really quickly, that is something that's really going to supply their need and really you know, fulfill that need that they have. And you get a house at a better deal as well. And then you can go back, refinance it since you're living in that house and get some of those great terms. And I love what Mindy said about these multiple exit options, because when you invest in real estate, you want to have multiple exit options just in case something happens with the market. So if you run the numbers as a rental property, as well. See if this cash flows, if it fits your criteria, you can see if this is something that maybe in a year down the line, you want to start to build a rental portfolio. Now you have a rental property there, but if the market starts to really appreciate, then you can also do the live and flip in a year later and get that tax-free growth on some of that money on those gains when you get to that point as well. So there's a lot of really cool things and really cool options that you can have here. And a lot of these are made possible by the flexibility of funding as well. So having that 3% down is really powerful for a lot of people, especially if you don't have a lot of money. You have so much more flexibility when it comes to doing live and flips. That's why I absolutely love this strategy as well. I think it's one of the best ones that you can ever be interested in when it comes to real estate and when you're starting off as well. So one big one I want to talk about is repairs. And now we've mentioned repairs a little bit already at the top of the show, but when it comes to repairs, you do your own repairs. So you went through the process of kind of learning how to do this stuff. Is YouTube the biggest way that you learned how to do this? Or I know early on you went to the library and kind of figured that out. But as time has progressed, do you use YouTube most? And that's kind of how you've learned how to do most of this stuff. Or do you have, you know, friends who are handy as well that can kind of help you with stuff? Oh, YouTube is so good. YouTube is so great. I could find the most obscure washing machine that has a problem. And I Google the product number on that. And sure enough, there's some person on YouTube who has fixed that and will show you step by step how to do it. I'm so thankful for YouTube. And if that doesn't work, sometimes just a plain old Google search will do the job great. You're having a problem and that works fine. Uh, one thing I want to say is in most municipalities, uh, people have asked us, hey, are you doing this on the up and up? Do you get permits? And yes, we do. Almost every place we've ever lived in has allowed the homeowner to do the work themselves. And I've only heard of one state that doesn't, maybe parts of Massachusetts. Some of them have a provision that you have to live in your house for a year after your repairs are done, so you want to get your permits closed up before they want you to sell it in case you did do something wrong. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that, and uh, we've never had an issue with permits. In fact, it surprised me how nice usually those people are to work with. So I'm going off on a tangent here, but I just wanted to (laughs) make that clear that we do do the work ourselves through the help of YouTube and Google, and we do it on the up and up. I think that's important to note that we are getting permits. Um, You are ideally doing a live and flip to sell it after owning it for two years. Your buyer is going to see that there was work done and is going to ask, were there permits pulled? When you say no in a hot market, maybe they don't care. Maybe they do care and they leave. 
If you say no in a down market, your buyer is going to demand that you get the work permitted. And the permit process can be very difficult if you did the work without the permit. I've seen people having to rip open drywall to prove that the electricity was done properly or that the plumbing was done properly. Do yourself a favor, even though it seems like a hassle, go to the permit office open up a permit for whatever you need to open up a permit for. And not everything needs permits. You don't need a permit to hang cabinets in our city. But it also doesn't matter what my city says about permits. It matters what your city says about permits. Talk to the permit office. Do some research ahead of time. I have found that the permit office is always really, really helpful if you go in with armed with some information. Hey, this is what I think can you verify? They'll say yes. You say, how do I get this permit? They'll tell you. You write them a big check because that's part of the process. And then you start the work. You get the permits closed out in a specific order. And as long as you're nice about it, they're nice too. I couldn't agree more. And we have done that process as well, where you definitely want to get those permits ahead of time and learn the process. And I've walked into that office. I've asked them a bunch of questions. They're always really nice in my area as well. So that is the best way to do it is kind of walk in and say, what do I need to get permitted? Usually they have little forms that they can hand you that tell you some of the stuff that have to be permitted. And then they can walk you through some of the work that you're doing as well and make sure you get that done because you can run into all kinds of problems if you don't do that. Have you ever miscalculated repairs before? (laughs) have we ever not miscalculated repairs (laughs) cue cue the scary music (laughs) no never everything always comes out perfect every single time Um, which time do you want to talk about well we did pretty good the house we're working on now we did pretty good but there was some scope creep involved but if we were smarter about it and had thought more about it maybe we would have anticipated that we would need to do the bathroom because of some flooring issues, everything always costs more than you think it would. I would always assume that. And like I said, I think 20% is a good thing to go by. And that's after years of experience with us. uh, Yeah, there's always going to be parts that you need or plumbing supplies or something's going to go wrong. You're going to find things that you didn't anticipate. Always be very, very conservative on this and build that into your calculations. Yeah. And Cut costs, not cut corners, cut costs when you can. You love this tile. It's $12 a square foot, but there's another one that's equally decent for $5 a square foot. Go with the $5 a square foot tile because you're saving a lot of money there that is absolutely going to be spent someplace else. I can almost guarantee it. I agree. And I think it's one of those things where you have to have that margin of safety, especially if you're new to this, you have to have that margin of safety because I have never, ever nailed my repairs either on any rental property or house or anything along those lines, especially if it's in our own house. Usually there's more things that we want as we get into that house. So that's definitely a huge factor is have that margin of safety, whatever percentage kind of works for you. I think that 20 percent number is a fantastic one as well. What are some of the downsides to live in flips? We've obviously talked about living in a construction zone. What are some of the other downsides that we have in play when it comes to doing this? We have a couple good stories. Andrew, you mentioned living in a house with only one toilet. In our previous house for for a while, we lived in a house with zero toilets. So what I'm getting at here is you're living in a construction zone. Again, cue the scary music. Uh, One of the houses we did back when we lived in the Midwest, I remember we didn't really design our life right. We both had full-time jobs and each of our commutes was three hours long. So we would wake up like 5.30 in the morning to make it downtown to the city. We would come back like at six, stuff some food in our mouth, work till midnight, get five or six hours of sleep and wake up and do it again. And then we would do it all weekends. Our friends would be like, hey, how about this TV show or this movie? Like, well, I haven't even heard about that yet. Sorry. And I remember at the lowest point, there was one time where Mindy had done a load of clothes And she had folded it up, put it nice in the laundry basket to be put away. And we both look at it and it's covered with a layer of drywall dust. And I think she started crying and rightfully so. We're both tired. We're both exhausted. I have wounds on my hand. I'm always hurting myself. I'm up to date on my tetanus shot. And that was a definite low point. So you are going to be living in a construction zone. And I'll back up a second and say this strategy is one to do before you you have children. Right now, we have kids and we've done it with them and your time should be to them, not to working on a house. So this strategy is for the young and and energetic. (laughs) 
I still have energy. I'm not so young and I have kids. Yeah. So the main absolute downside is you're going to be living in a construction zone. You're going to be maybe having a crock pot in your bathtub and that's how you cook dinner for the week. And then you eat the same thing for the next four days because all you have access to is that crock pot. You're going to be doing dishes in your bathroom sink because your kitchen is demolished. So you have to be willing to put up with some pain. But I'll say everything I just said probably scared a lot of people. But when you get that huge check after two years, it, it makes that pain disappear. Yeah. What I said just might have scared some people. If this scares you, then this strategy is not for you. And be honest with yourself. And there's all levels of this strategy. You could buy a really beautiful house that somebody decided to paint every wall purple. In this market, there are people who don't want to deal with painting the walls. You could get a big discount just because somebody had bad taste in paint. Installing flooring is a pretty easy thing to do. So if there's really ugly shag carpet and purple walls, but the kitchen is nice and new or beautiful or beautiful-ish, you could buy that house, install the new floors or have the new floors installed, paint it, and then you've got a beautiful house for a discount. There's all levels of rehab to be done. And one thing Andrew said at the beginning, he's like, oh yeah, you're getting takeout every week. I didn't realize that was an option. So I was doing dishes in the bathtub and crock pot meals because I didn't realize we could just go out to dinner every night. That's not what my frugal heart says is okay. (laughs) So Andrew, one quick thing I'll say to the upside and to hopefully inspire your listeners, if we have just de-inspired them is, I did the numbers a while ago, and I think we've made between seven and $800,000 profit just from this, just from being able to put up with a little bit of discomfort, maybe a lot of times, but some discomfort and two tetanus shots, seven to $800,000, and then we've reinvested that money. So once you do all those calculations, we've made millions with an S on the end of that because of the money we made and reinvested into things just like index funds in the stock market. So, yeah, I don't regret. I I regret some small decisions, but I don't regret this strategy one bit. And that's the important thing to note here is, are you willing to kind of put up with some of that stuff? Especially a lot of people who listen to this podcast are really interested in financial independence. So a lot of people are on the path to financial independence. And just think about how big of a difference it can make is that if every two years you're making twenty to $100,000 profit on something that's completely tax-free that you can now put towards your fire, financial independence, and fuel that fire with those dollars. So is that worth it to you? Because you can get to fire so much faster if you actually put these extra dollars towards that. You heard Carl just now say seven to $800,000. I mean, that's an extra thirty to $35,000 per year in retirement that you can draw down if you use the 4% rule. So just thinking about that is really, really important. Weighing all of this stuff out, is it worth it to live in a way where maybe it's not the normal way to live, but at the same time, there's a lot of benefits to this as well. But if it does scare you, Mindy's right. It may not be the strategy for you. So you got to find either properties that don't have as much work, like just painting the walls, maybe doing some minor things. If you have multiple bathrooms to a bathroom, you can still find a strategy like that. And, or maybe it's just not the best strategy for you at all. Now, when it comes to selling these properties, we get past our two years, we hit that two year point and we want to sell our living flips. So do you have any tips for selling properties? And If you do, how do you minimize some of those transaction costs? Because obviously when you sell a property, you take on a ton of transaction costs as well. Yeah, when you sell, typically the seller is paying the commissions for both the buyer's agent and the seller's agent. So the obvious is to just not use an agent and go FSBO. That doesn't always work. And in a slower market, that's going to make it more difficult to sell. It's going to take longer. So be honest with yourself. I mean, that's my number one recommendation is be honest with yourself. What's your timeline? What's your need for a sale? Um, FSBOs take longer to sell. If you need to sell it right away, maybe you have found your next house to move into. You need to sell it. Put it on the market at a slightly lower price. If your real estate agent says, hey, comps in the area are between 500 and 525, go closer towards 500. It's in the long term, what is an extra $5,000 versus selling the house quickly so you can move on and go do something else? 
And we have a great tip. It's something we did many years ago, which we're thankful for. You got your real estate license. I have my real estate license, which is a great tip, but be aware of what that entails. It is, um, I think it costs something like $3,500 to get my real estate license with all of the coursework and all of the testing and the all the things. It was approximately $3,500 to get my license and have it for the first year. However, when you sell a house, at $500,000 at a 3% commission for just the sell side, that is $15,000. So you can save money doing that. Again, be honest with yourself. Do you have the time to put into it to get your real estate license? Do you want to act as a real estate agent in any capacity or do you want to just sell it and be done? And just to be clear here, you got your real estate license for the sole purpose of this strategy. While Mindy has worked with people since then, that's not why we got it at all. Yeah, that's not initially why I got it. Now I work as a real estate agent and actually sell a lot of houses. Did I tell you I was a top producer last year? Wow. I forgot to tell you Congratulations. That. <laughs> yeah, happy Yay. side effect. Exactly. That's incredible. And I, I actually got my, when I was younger, I got mine as well just to invest in rental properties. And it just made the process a lot easier to make offers. But I figured now, I went through and did the math one time, and it was well over six figures that I saved just by doing this from the amount of houses that I've sold from rentals to personal residences. So it is definitely a strategy. If you have time, it's a great strategy to look into so that you have access to the MLS. You can have access to some of these properties and in addition, be able to sell those. But obviously, that's not for everybody. But if you do have that time frame, it really is helpful. It's extremely helpful to know how to do that as well. So I want to go through some of your best and worst living flips just to paint a picture of what best case scenario and worst case scenario of what can happen here. So can you kind of talk through both of those? What was our best living flip experience? Probably the one that we just sold a couple of years ago. We moved into a house in 2013. It was a very tiny house. It was two beds and one bath, and we ended up adding a second story, and it went from two beds, one bath to four beds, three baths. And we had a great experience with the live-in flip because it was a great street. We made a lot of friends on the street. We sold at maybe just before the top of the market, so we made a ton of money. I think we brought home $275,000 after selling, like we bought it for 140 and we sold it for 598. Yeah, it was like that. 176 the purchase price. 176. And probably right. put like 100 to 120,000 into it. Yeah. Adding a second story, maybe not the most fun ever, but overall the house looked amazing when we were finished and yeah, nothing really 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 catastrophic happened yeah. except the rain. And I gained <laughs> lot, lots of new school, lots of new skills, a quick a quick aside, it's so nice when something breaks in your house and you can fix it yourself instead of paying a big fee to someone who may or may not show up. Exactly. I think that's a huge key as well that can come out of this is you have all these extra skills in play that you can utilize. Now, Carl, did you put that second story on yourself or did you have help with that? Uh, we paid carpenters to do the rough work and then we did stuff like the electricity, we did all the flooring, we did all the finished work on the house. So we paid someone to frame it, do the roof, get it weather tight, and then everything else was up to us. That's absolutely incredible. So really, in those couple of years, you made well over $100,000 per year just for living in your house and doing some work on it as well. So that's fantastic. What is your worst living flip? Okay, I'm going to paint another scary, <laughs> scary picture for you. Uh, we had a two-month-old child at home, and this was our other house where we decided to add a second story. And similar, we paid contractors to frame it out, and then we would finish it. So they had framed out the top, but it didn't have a roof on it yet, and there were all these tarps on it. So we start watching the Weather Channel. We hear there's storms moving in. And sure enough, there's storms moving in. They don't look too bad. But then they did get bad. So what happened is this super strong wind kicked up and blew all the tarps off the roof. And then I looked at the weather. And, you know, they've got those colors you go on the Weather Channel. And this color was like a dark purple, meaning we were going to have some very, very, very bad rains. It turned out to rain six inches that night. And we didn't have a roof over our heads. So I remember at like two in the morning, you're managing the baby and we're in a bed that has a ceiling fan directly over, like centered over the bed. And there's water <laughs> pouring out <laughs> through every light fixture in the house. But I specifically remember the one over our bed <laughs> and we were getting like <laughs> dumping any storage bins we had and putting them under these places where all the water is pouring in and it, it damaged the, the part of the house that we were living in and 
it was just a big mess. That might have been the all-time low point. I, I don't know if that was or when we were down to one toilet. But still, it's that was the worst case, the worst of the worst case scenario. And uh, those things don't usually happen. Then the next day, the sun came out. We, we moved on and life was better. But that one was rough. Uh, the other bad thing that happened during that is I talked about the macro environment. That was a luxury home and we bought it. In 2006, and if uh, you're a little bit older, you remember what happened shortly after 2006. The housing market dropped, and luxury houses were especially killed. So that one we probably broke even on or maybe didn't even make money off of it. (laughs) But, yeah, we got to live in a nice house for a while. So that one, not so great. And at least you broke even on that kind of the the worst-case scenario that could happen. At least you don't lose money and you're living in a house. So that's still better than a lot of people would do in that situation. They'd probably lose value on their house if they sold it at that time as well. So that's an awesome one. So I want to shift gears here because this has been really fun to kind of talk through this stuff. And these are some questions that are a little bit deeper that we ask a lot of our guests. And I wanted to see what your guys' take are on are on some of these. So what part of your worker life makes you come alive? Uh, wow. Uh, I really like podcasting. I am the host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, and I love talking to people about their money story and their journey to financial independence. That's the part of my work that makes me come alive. The part of my home or my life that makes me come alive is just spending time with my kids and being able to be there when they get home from school and being able to be there in the mornings when they're getting ready for school and having conversations with them before they go off on their day. Yeah, and my answer would be building things and solving a problem to build something. And I was a coder, and that fits the bill for that because you've got a problem to solve through computer code, but I also get the same satisfaction from doing things on a house. Hey, this doesn't quite work out. We could do it 10 different ways. What's the best, most efficient way to do it? And it's so gratifying to do the tile in your bathroom or solve some problem and then sit back at the end of the day and, and look back at the work and think, I did that, and this is what, this is what it looked like before. This is what it looks like now. And yeah, I'm so thankful to be able to do that in my day-to-day life. I absolutely love those answers. So those are some of the the coolest ways to actually kind of go through the process of life and kind of see what you can do and have all this flexibility that you guys have, have actually created through financial independence and some of the things that you have done over time. So the second one is what is the best money advice you have ever received? Okay. So trip down memory lane, like cue that going back in time music. I had this grandmother who was really cranky and and kind of an angry person. She had lived through the depression and just not happy. So whenever my sister and I would buy something stupid with our allowance money, she would get mad at us and scold us. But the other thing she would say to us, every time we would go over to her house, she would get this look on her face, kind of glare at us and then say, save your money. And that's it. That would be it. Save your money. And I guess it stuck because when I finally got money and a good job, I saved it. So yeah, thank you, Grandma S, for instilling your money saving (laughs) principles, even if your delivery was a bit antagonistic. (laughs) I love that one. I think it's the most simple advice, but it's what we need to do. It's what we all need to do in that one. Mandy, do you have one? Uh, Spend on things that matter to you and don't spend money. Save money on things that don't matter. Exactly. It's spending your dollars on the things that you actually value. I love that. So the last one is my favorite. We get a pretty much a different answer every time on this. It's interesting how people kind of think through this process. And it is, what does wealth mean to you? Oh, Andrew, I'm going to tell you a story. I'll make it quick. When I started a blog, when I discovered financial independence and someone wanted to interview me for a podcast and it wasn't anything big, they probably had four listeners and I freaked out. I was so nervous about that. Through financial independence, I have autonomy over my time, and I've been able to work on my insecurities like that one and my confidence levels. So about a year ago, I gave a talk in front of 500 real-life humans, and I was less nervous doing that than talking on this random podcast that no one ever listened to on the phone to one person. So (laughs) I'm so thankful that wealth gives me the autonomy over my time so I can do things like to work on myself. It's so good. I'm really thankful and tons of gratitude for the way life has worked out. That's incredible. I love that. And it's it's being able to have the time to work on yourself, to grow and develop is, is absolutely amazing. Yeah. If you would have talked to me five years ago, two people have said this to me. They're like, hey, dude, I, I met you and you're you're so much different than when I knew you before. And better. It's better. It's not worse. I probably worse <laughs> in some ways. I'm probably a couple pounds heavier, but... Yeah, that's probably the best compliment I've ever received. What about you, Mindy? What does wealth mean to you? Well, I want to say something (laughs) 
really funny, like Scrooge McDuck's piles of cash all over the place. But now I have to be serious because Carl gave such a great answer. The freedom to choose what I do with my time. It's not showy. It's it's just knowing that it's there, knowing that the money is there. I am wealthy because I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. I love that. And that's the most valuable thing that money can provide is create that freedom for our lives. So Mindy, Carl, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you guys so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. Can you tell us where people can find out more about you guys and what you have going on? So I have a blog and a podcast. You can find my blog at 1500days.com. That's the number of days I thought it would take me to retire. And the podcast is Mile High Fi. And Mindy also has a kind of big podcast. <laughs> uh, I am the host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. And you can find me all over Bigger Pockets and at Mindy at BP, M I N D Y A T B P is my handle on all the social media platforms. Amazing. And we will link all those up down in the show notes below so that you guys can check them out. I definitely recommend you check all those things out as well. And thank you, Mindy, Carl. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely amazing. Oh, thank you so much. If anyone has questions real quick, go to my website and email me. I love talking about problems. And I think half my emails are helping someone solve some HVAC or roof problem. So thank you, Andrew. Perfect. Absolutely. We'll link those all up down in the show notes below. Everyone's heard the saying, you have to spend money to make money. But everything in life, from travel to starting a business, is expensive. Which is why I want to tell you about a new podcast I love that will teach you all the tactics, tricks, and tips you need to upgrade your life, money, and even travel, all while spending less and saving more. It's called All the Hacks, and it's a top-ranked show hosted by my good friend Chris Hutchins. A financial optimizer, an entrepreneur who's racked up millions of points, and he sold two companies. And if you want to rethink the way you're spending money, you have to check out the episode 91 with Bill Perkins and why you should be optimizing for net fulfillment and not net worth and striving to die with zero. All the Hacks has something for everyone, and I'm sure you'll find a new tactic that you can apply to your own life, whether it's a money hack that increases your net worth or a routine change that boosts your productivity. So check out All the Hacks. That's All the Hacks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your wallet will thank you later.